This morning we are looking to the letter of Paul to Titus. The book of Titus, and you will find this if you don't have your own Bible and would like to use one here from one of the chairs in front of you. You will find our text on page 998 in Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Brian Chappell is the president of Covenant Theological Seminary. And in his commentary on uh, the book of Titus, he tells a story about his teenage son. Listen to what he says. A few weeks ago, my teenage son went to see a popular movie. Unbeknownst to him and to us, due to the posted rating, the movie included a scene with nudity and a following sexual encounter. My son walked out of the movie and took his friends with him. I was very proud of him for his principal leadership, yet what happened to my son afterwards has left me flabbergasted, discouraged, and occasionally angry. Over the next several weeks, the Christian friends and adult leaders in his life, almost without exception, told him he was wrong. They said that such sexual material was not a valid reason for any really mature Christian with a well-developed world and life view to not see a movie. The result, of course, is that my son felt confused and alone in his commitment. So who was right? Who was right in this instance? Was the teenage son right for getting up and walking out? Or were the youth and the adults right to tell him that he was in fact just an immature Christian and he should learn to appreciate the culture and the artistry of the film in which he is seeing? Now my goal in telling the story is not to get into the specifics of movies per se this morning, but to get you to think through the larger question of how Christians are to live their lives in the midst of the culture around them. Are we just to embrace the culture, seeking to redeem it as it were, or do we put our flag in the sand? Do we draw a line and say, this is the... This is the life that Christ has called us to. And regardless of what the culture says around us, we are going to maintain uh, a certain level of care with our lives. I hate to say it, even as one, you know, it's the kind of thing you expect to say when maybe you're 50 or 60. No offense to anyone who's 50 or 60 out there. But even at 33, I can look back and say there are things that go on in our culture. There are things that go on and are shown on television uh, that were just um, no way that would have happened when I was younger. I mean, just no way they would have shown that. No way people would be talking about these things on the 6 o'clock news. But now it's just the way we live. No one bats an eye. And the question is, how do we respond to that? Do we just kind of casually sing along with Dylan the times they are a-changing and just go with the flow? Or do we say, regardless of what society says around us is normal, Regardless of what some Christians say around us is normal, we're going to go more intently into the scriptures. We're going to look more, more longingly at Christ and say, how would you have us live, O oh God? What is the standard that you desire for our lives? The real question comes down to this. 
if we have been saved by grace and it's not been of anything we have done, does it then matter how we live as God's people? With these questions swirling around in our minds this morning, we want to look and we want to look at and consider Paul's letter to Titus. Much like uh, his letter to Timothy, Paul is writing here to one of his ministry partners to give him encouragement and advice on leading a local church in the, in the city of Crete. And the one thing he emphasizes, the, the overriding concern Paul has in this letter is to show the unbreakable link between belief and behavior, between faith and life. And to see this message that Paul writes to Titus, we want to look at the very heart of the letter, chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. To give you uh, just something of the context, Paul has begun in chapter 2, very specifically, to lay out the expected behavior of God's people. He tells Titus, you tell the old men, the older men, act like this. You tell the younger men, act like this. You tell the older women, you tell them to act like this. And you tell the younger women to act like this. And he lays out all of this instruction on do's and don'ts for Christian living. And then in verse 11, he says this, for, for, in other words, here's the reason why I've just told you how to live in all of these areas. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. May God bless the reading of his word. Paul makes it clear here that the life lived by Christians, by God's people, is to be lived by God's grace. People saved by God's grace are called to live by God's grace. What is God's grace, some may ask? It is simply this, God's unearned, undeserved love and favor. God, God looks at us and simply put, he gives us what we don't deserve. That's grace. And Paul says we are to live a life by grace. And he tells us what that should look like. Paul tells us four ways in which we as God's people should be living by grace. And in doing so, he shows us how our lives as God's people should look radically different from the culture around us. So four things we want to see this morning about grace. First of all, we need to see this, that grace brings us to salvation. Grace brings us to salvation. I think my throat being dry, I had salivation on the mind there. It was hard to come out. Nevertheless, we're talking about salvation. Paul begins with the phrase, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, when Paul speaks about the grace of God appearing, he is speaking about the coming of Christ. The whole of the incarnation, from the manger at Christmas, to the cross on Good Friday, to the resurrection on Easter, and to the ascension 40 days later. 
And understand, it's not as if God's grace hadn't appeared before this. It's not as if God's grace all of a sudden just appeared when Christ came. When you read through the books of the Old Testament, you will see virtually on every page them dripping wet with God's grace. It is just being screamed to you over and over again. These people do not deserve God's love. They don't deserve His blessings. They don't deserve to know Him. And yet, He gives all those things to, him, to them anyway. He makes Himself known to them. He gives them His love. He gives them His blessing, His protection, His care. It is grace, grace, grace. But when we get to the New Testament, when we move from old to new, what we see now is grace that has come, grace par excellence, grace in its fullness through the coming of Jesus Christ. So that the grace that was seen in the Old Testament was actually an overflow of the grace that was going to come in Christ. So that now, both in Old Covenant and in New Covenant, how are we saved? How, do we, how are we rescued from God's wrath poured out, poured out upon us? It's grace. It's not what we do. It's not keeping the law there and keeping the law here or keeping the law there or just believing here. No, it has always been about receiving something we did not deserve, something we could not earn, something that we did not make a pledge for or promise to work hard for or go through some kind of initiation or say a prayer that brought this thing about. No, Paul says it has come by grace. And later in the book, he explains specifically what that looks like. In chapter 3, he says, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. God is the one who sends His Spirit, giving us new life, cleansing us from our sins, making us His people. In other words, when it comes to salvation, God is the one who does all the heavy lifting. You know, uh, you know we, we have talked uh, in another context before that many, that many times people think of salvation as if it's launching a nuclear missile. God turns His key of grace, we turn our key of works, they don't call it that, they call it faith, but it's works, and then the missile of salvation launches. Friends, that's not the way it works. God's turning both keys. He's turning the key and sending Christ, and He is turning the key and sending the Spirit to give us life that we might see without the blindness of sin our great need of Christ and so believe. He is the one that produces the new birth that issues out in conversion, the cry of repentance and faith to God. So that all that we have, all that we have in terms of knowing who God is and being redeemed as His people, it has come from His hand. And the question is, who does this then come to? What does Paul say in chapter 2 again? Salvation has appeared to all men. Now what does that mean? What does that mean? Recently a pastor from a large church in Grand Rapids has written a book called Love Wins. And in that book, he basically says that a God who would send people to hell isn't much of a God. The gospel that Christ is there to save you from God, who would otherwise destroy you, isn't really good news. 
and therefore he seems to advocate universalism. The love of God wins in the end, and everyone is saved. Now, I say seems because, to be fair to this man, his book isn't out yet. Instead, what has become popular, there is the trailer for the book. You know, you have the trailer, the preview for the movie. Now they do trailers for books. As if somehow people who are only geared towards watching images are now going to be tricked into thinking, oh, this book will be like a movie. No, sorry, you still got to read it. All right? Or listen to it, one of the ways. But, but so, so go, go see what you think. I mean, just, just Google uh, Love Wins, Rob Bell, and watch the trailer and see what you think. Say, I don't have Google. Well, then find someone with a smartphone before you leave and say, hey, look that up for me so I can see it. See if maybe you're seeing something different than me. The reality is, though, I don't think you're going to see anything different. I think you're going to think what you're going to see is a man who has grown a very large church, a very trendy church, 10,000 people a week hearing his message on site through multiple services over two days. He is a man who has always been on the fringes of evangelicalism, and now he has slid completely off into classic liberalism that says, in the end, everyone's going to be saved. No one's going to go to hell. Now, truth be told, truth be told, while that saddens me, it frankly doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me. Not only because it's this individual who seems to be advocating it, but because that's culture today, isn't it? We don't, we don't want to hear about hell. We, we don't want to hear about untold billions of people throughout time having sinfully rejected God, spending an eternity in hell. People, people don't like to hear about hell. And so when they hear this, this person, this respected pastor, say, don't worry about it because there's no such thing as hell. Love wins in the end. They say, I like that. That's fresh. That's something new. And they believe it. But the question is, is that what Paul's saying here? When he says the salvation has appeared to all men, does he mean that God's grace has so permeated all people that they all get saved? No, I don't think so. Because if that's what he's saying, then either Jesus was wrong or Paul was also confused because all throughout the Gospels and elsewhere in Paul's letters, they both say there's going to be people in hell. That God will judge sin. In fact, Jesus, I was just telling someone the other day, Jesus actually talks almost twice as much about hell as he does heaven. Not so much to scare people, I think, as to emphasize the reality this place is real. It's not a fairy tale. It's not the vestiges of some uh, crusty old Neanderthal religion. Our Savior says this is a real place. And people will be there because they've lived lives of sin, rejecting the God who made them. Now what Paul means is good news. And it's this. There is no person that is beyond the grace of God. That's what he means. He means there is not any person because of ethnicity, because of upbringing, because of depth of sin, because of poverty, because of where they live in the world. There is no person who stands unable to receive God's grace for salvation. It has appeared to all men everywhere where the gospel is proclaimed, they can be saved. And again, it's by grace. It's by grace. It's not because they've deserved it. It's not because they've earned it. It's not because they're good people. It's in spite of those things that God offers salvation to all people. But what happens once we believe? 
what happens when we experience God's salvation. What happens next? What we see is that grace does not just appear for our salvation. Grace also trains us for godliness. That's the second thing we want to see this morning. That grace trains us for godliness. The culture of Crete was infamous for its, its immorality. In fact, earlier in chapter 1, there's got to be one of the greatest verses in all the New Testament, not for its theological um, accuracy, uh, just because it's uh, sheer honesty. Um, Paul says in verse 12, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Now, how do you like that? I mean, Paul quotes one of the Cretans. He, he, he quotes a citizen of Crete who says, uh, Our people are horrible. Our city is known for its debauchery and lecherous nature. And Paul says, yeah, he's right. I mean, he understands his culture well. I think today many of us will be able to say, citizens of the United States are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. That seems to fit pretty well today for us too, doesn't it? Paul says their own people know what kind of sinners there are. But he warns Titus in this letter and through Titus so also the church that just because the people of Crete are that way that doesn't mean the the, the church in Crete is supposed to be that way that's his whole point that as people who have experienced God's grace you are to be distinctive from the people around you so if someone is, 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 is walking down Bay City they can say yeah I can see Bay City he's from Bay City he's from Bay City maybe Saginaw Bay City who is that dude I mean, he's different. He actually, you know, smiled at the guy who gave him the finger. You know, he didn't yell back. He didn't say something snarky. He smiled. And I, I, maybe I even heard him say, God bless. I'm not sure. But he didn't say it with irony even. And, you know, when that guy, when he's getting his car started to take off from the donut shop and the, the guy swerves in, driving too fast in the snow and plows into him, he didn't get out. And yell at him. He didn't get out and, 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 and want to go after him. And so he calmly got out, asked him what happened, asked him if it was okay, took down his, his, his information and went on his merry way. He actually treats his wife well. He loves his children. Where is this person from? What, what planet has he arrived on? Was it a small rocket ship or something? I mean, where is this person from? That's what Paul's saying. He's saying when they look at the church, they should not say, oh, they're from Crete. They should say, what planet are they from? What city did they move in from? Because they're obviously not from around here. They are different. They are distinct. And Paul says, we should know that distinctiveness means we are holy as God himself is holy. The grace that declares us holy before God, Paul says, is the same grace that is at work to make us holy before God. Yes, we are justified by grace, but Paul says we are also sanctified by grace. Verse 12, the grace of God has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Trace, tra grace trains us for godliness. It does in two ways. First, it says we are to renounce ungodliness. As God's people, we are to learn to say no to sin. We are to learn to say no to sin. I know that's a novel idea, but that's what God says. 
That's what God says. As God's people, we don't just live according to our passions. We don't just live however we want. We are God's people. We live how He wants us to live. Therefore, we put sin to death in our lives. More than that, though, it's not just saying no to sin. It's saying yes to godliness. It's two sides of the same coin. We don't just say, I'm going to stay away from those things that I shouldn't be involved in. I'm going to say no to sin. We also say, something has to be done with my character. Something has to be done with the way that I think, the way that I speak, and the way that I live. Therefore, I pursue godliness. The example Paul gives is a life of self-control, a life of upright and godly behavior. That's what Christians are supposed to do. But that's not very easy, is it? I mean, let's just put our cards on the table. We know instinctively we should say no to sin and yes to godliness. But how often, how often is it an easy thing to do? One of the Puritan pastors, Samuel Rutherford, who was known for the, um, just the, the Christ-centeredness, the pastoral care that he shows in his letters, wrote to one young man and said this, Sanctification and mortification of lust. Mortification of lust means putting to death sinful desires. Sanctification and mortification of lust are the hardest part of Christianity. How many of us would have Christ divided into two halves that we might take the half of Him only? We take His office, Jesus and salvation. But Lord is a cumbersome word. And to obey and work out our own salvation and to perfect holiness is the cumbersome and stormy north side of Christ. The one that we eschew and shift away from. He's right, isn't it? We like forgiveness. We like grace. We say, we say, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. Make me forgiven. Make me right with you. Pour out your blessing. But, but when we hear Christ's command, take up your cross and follow me, we say, I'm not so sure about that one now. I'm not so sure about the, I'm not so sure about the, the, the die to myself and follow you as Lord part. I'm not so sure about the, the no to sin and the yes to godliness. Part of this is because even though we have been saved, we have been given God's Spirit, our sinful hearts have not yet been taken away. We'll, we'll talk about when that happens in just a few minutes. And so we feel almost as if two magnets being attracted together, we feel a draw towards sin, don't we? As we're flipping through, finding something to watch, much like the young man in the opening illustration, something comes on television... And our first instinct isn't to flip the switch. Our first instinct is to take our thumb off and to get a Coke and sit and watch for a while. Right, men? Am I wrong in this? Our instinct is not to look away and not to flee sin. It's a, well, well maybe, maybe just a second. I wonder how much they're really going to show. That's the way our mind works. And we could go through all kinds of things about the desire to, to feel anger and, and bitter towards someone, to share gossip in the name of a prayer request, but our hearts seem to just gravitate towards sin and make excuses for it. But that's, that's not how we're supposed to live as God's people. As God's people, we are supposed to hate sin and to run away from it. So the question is, how do we do that? How do we do what God says we should do? How do we renounce, godliness, uh, renounce ungodliness and embrace godliness? Well, Paul's already said, doesn't he? It is grace that trains us to do this. 
It's not enough just to say, I have to be holy. And so here's my checklist of holiness. That's not enough. That, 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 having a, a list of vices to avoid and virtues to embrace, that, that can be good for showing us the kind of life we should and shouldn't have. But that list is not actually going to make you holy. That, that list does nothing to actually helping you achieve what's on the printed page. Paul says it is by grace that we are trained to renounce sin and pursue God. How does it do this? Well, again, we remember the fountain from which our blessings flow. It is the fountain of the grace of Christ. He is to be our focus. It's remembering His work to bring us to God that allows us to resist sin and live a holy life. It is remembering again and again the work of Christ that begins a change in our heart which where the change needs to happen so that we desire sin less and we desire God more. Tullian Tavigians explains it like this. The commands in the Bible, the, the do this and don't do this, the commands in the Bible are like a set of railroad tracks. The tracks provide no power for the train, but the train must stay on the tracks in order to function. The law, in other words, never gives any power to do what it commands. It shows us what a sanctified life looks like, but it has no sanctifying power. Only the gospel has power, as it were, to move the train. This is why the Bible never tells us what to do before first soaking our hearts and minds in what God and Christ has already done. In other words, I am the Lord your God who has saved you from sin. Therefore, live as my people. It is not the living as his people that makes us right with him. He's already made us right with him. And so as we soak our minds in that grace, it becomes the power by which our heart becomes transformed. We grow in our love for Christ, and as we love him more, sin begins to look ugly. It begins to look disgusting. And so we find ourselves more and more, far more willing to flip the remote, to move past, to not share gossip as a prayer request, and so many other things because our love for Christ has increased. Not because we've kept more detailed lists. Therefore, we must again and again go to the gospel, preaching to ourselves, reminding us of the great grace we have received from God. In this way, we will also find that grace prepares us for the future. This is the third thing I want to see. Grace prepares us for the future. Why does God save us by His grace? Why does God desire us and enable us to be a holy people? He says this, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, why? To redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. What will they be like? They'll be a people who are zealous for good works. I think it was Luther who said, we are saved by grace alone, but grace is never alone. His point was, we don't do works to bring us to God, but once we've been brought to God, good works should flow cascadingly out of our lives. How do we stay encouraged to do that now? I mean, we know we're to leave godly lives, we're to do good works for God, but how do we stay encouraged to do that? After all, this is not heaven. If it is, uh, I want my money back. Okay, uh, This is not heaven. This is a world full of sin 
and corruption and frankly it's depressing sometimes to sit and just watch the news. I had a, uh, just, uh, it was a little bit crazy but it was also fun uh, being a chaperone on a field trip with Rebecca's class on Friday. But all the fun that I had with her frankly was tainted by hearing the stories of home life from so many villagers. And you just look and you say, sin has left a deep and lasting scar across the landscape of families in this country. To hear from a son who lives with three different people throughout the week and misses his mom whom he cannot see, you just think, I don't want to live in this kind of world. I don't want to live in this kind of life. And we ourselves go through difficulties. And we see kids like that or perhaps family members who go through those kind of things. And our, our burning desire is just look at them and say, it's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. But reality check, we're not God. We don't know the future for, for them or for us. We don't know if it's going to be all right or not. We can't make that promise. And when all of the weight of that becomes crashing down a reality on our lives, it becomes very hard to stay motivated to live for God. At least it does for me. So the question is, what is the solution through that? How do we find the strength to get up and to press on when we don't know how things are going to work out? We're faced with sin and depravity every day. Evil stares us in the face. What do we do? Paul says we look to the future. We look to the future because this is the one promise we can bank on. One day, it's all going to be fixed. One day, Christ is going to come back as the conquering king and there will be no more sin or evil or homelessness or divorce or homes ripped apart or physical abuse or sexual abuse or murder or war or corruption. It will all be gone. Not just out there, but in here as well. Isn't that, what, isn't that what Paul just said? The king is returning. This is the blessed hope that we have. In fact, it is one of the few things that we have assurance of, absolute and total assurance in this life, and that is one day Jesus will be back. And that is the ultimate remedy to every problem that we see in this world. The restoration of this world, the restoration of our own hearts. Can, can you imagine a life in which you do not sin? Can you imagine a life where there is no temptation to sin? You know, if we, if we were even put on a desert island, you think there was not much temptation there, we would find ways of sinning. Right? I mean, am I, am I right? Maybe I'm just wrong. If nothing else, we would just, we, we would create all the things that we've loved so much in the rest of our life that they would become idols to us. But imagine a world where Christ comes back and he says, not only is there, is there not going to be any temptation to sin, it will be gone. But your very hearts will be so transformed, so purified, that there will be no vestiges of sin left so that even if there were a temptation, you wouldn't go after it. You will so love your Savior that the thought of sin will seem like a bad dream from a past life. Nothing there. Nothing there.
to hinder the absolute glory and joy of being in God's presence forever, knowing that He is both a good and gracious God who has saved people who didn't deserve it, people like you, and a God who's also remained just and punished sin. And all of that will remain the same forever. No more threat of a fall, no more threat of a potential Lucifer coming about. No more rebellion against God. Paul here bases that on one of the strongest statements of Jesus' divinity in the Bible. He says, it is our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is coming again and will do these things. Why does he make such a direct statement? Surely it's implied in some of these other things. I think it's because it's only God is the one who can make that assurance. It's only God who can wipe away sin. It's only God who can make that absolute promise for the future. And friends, the way we stay encouraged is to fix our eyes on that day. To long for it, knowing we are not made for this. We have been remade in the image of Christ. We're made for that. That's where our treasure should be. That's where our heart should be. One of the best-loved books in all of church history is John Bunyan's allegory of the Christian life called The Pilgrim's Progress. And at one point in the book, uh, the main character, Christian, struggles to climb the hill of difficulty. But once he has climbed it, <coughs> he is invited to rest for a while in a place called the Castle Beautiful. And while he is there, he receives instruction. He receives uh, gifts that will allow him to continue to persevere metaphorically speaking, in his life as a Christian. And yet before he is sent on his way, he is taken up to the highest mountain and he says, look over the toll, look over there. That's the celestial city. That's where you're going. In the context of the story, it's heaven for the character of Christian. And as Christian looks out and he sees the celestial city, he sees something so beautiful, so glorious, something so, so absolutely captivating of Emmanuel's land. Just a glimpse, a glimmer of it, a shininess on the horizon. And he takes off down that hill, more determined, more encouraged, more emboldened, that nothing will stop him from arriving in that place at his destination. Friends, how much more for us in this real life to, to get a glimpse of the picture that God gives us of eternity, of the new heavens and the new earth, of the future promised to us by God, and so find ourselves encouraged, impassioned, emboldened by grace to live based on the promises that God has made to us, doing good works in this world. The last thing that we see, the last thing that we see quickly is this, that grace enables us for teaching. That grace enables us for teaching. Look at what Paul says in these verses again. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And then notice what he tells Titus in verse 15. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Two observations about this. First, 
Grace enables us for teaching in this way and enables those who are going to do the teaching to do so by the truth of God's Word. As much as Paul exhorted Timothy to hold on to and proclaim the truth, so also he tells Titus to do these things. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Why? Because like so many churches, false teachers had crept up. We are told in chapter 1, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Now how is Titus supposed to do this? How is he supposed to, on the one hand, teach the truth, and on the other hand, call out those who would not teach the truth and draw people astray? How are pastors to do that today? How are they to fight off the wolves and guard the sheep? Paul says they're to do it by grace. What I mean is this, their message is one of grace. Paul says the very things that I have just taught you and taught the people in Crete, you teach those things. Explain how to live a life of grace. In other words, teachers are not to succumb to the false teaching that is driven by selfish gain and by driven by a, a teaching of works. Instead, their message is to be anchored in the gospel of grace. And secondly, when I talk about grace enabling us for teaching, it also means that those sitting under the teaching are enabled to receive it by grace. How many of you like to have your sin pointed out? How many of you absolutely love it when someone comes up to you and says, you know, I don't think you should be doing that. Can I pray for you and help you in this? Or what you said really offended me. How many of you have sat here on a Sunday and thought, how does he know that about me? as you felt like that I was driving the finger deeper and deeper and deeper into your face. I mean, I'll be honest, I mean, I've said at conferences before and I thought, you know, that, that message was given for no one else in, that, in this room but me. I mean, that is, exi- I mean, he, he just nailed me to the wall. That is my sin. How many of us like that? I mean, let's be honest, it's easy to hate that, isn't it? We, 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 don't, we don't like that, that, that conviction that comes and drives right in past all of our defenses, past all of our excuses, and just lays us bare before God and everyone else. And the reality is we can fail in living as Christians when we fail to face our sin. Instead of hearing teaching that exhorts and corrects and seeing it as a mercy of God that provides for us the means by which to grow in godliness, we can despise it because we don't like to feel uncomfortable. Paul tells Titus, and so the church, exhort, rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. If the teaching is the kind of teaching Paul has just outlined, if it's rooted in the grace of God given in Christ, then the teacher is supposed to both exhort and rebuke, that is, encourage godliness and condemn sin. And to sit under that teaching is not meant to be off-putting. It's not meant to be disregarded. It's meant to be seen as the very thing God wants for your life. We aren't to hear the teacher pointing out our sins and start thinking about that person a few rows over. Yeah, he's talking about you, buddy. You listen to this? That's what we do, though, isn't it? We're not to listen to a teacher begin to, 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 to pick in and get at where we are with our character and our flaws and think, well, he doesn't really know what he's talking about. That's not the right exegesis of that text. I mean, come on, doesn't he know Greek and Hebrew? Didn't he go to school? 
Now, loved ones, all of us, all of us are to be humble and malleable under the teaching of God's Word. And again, we are to do that by grace. We don't sit and feel condemned by God for our failure. We don't sit and feel condemned by God for our sin. If we are His people, then the punishment for that sin has already been laid on Christ. He has bore the burden and we bear it no more. Therefore, it is like a father telling his child, don't do that, don't act that way, you know it's not right. It doesn't cast us out of the family. It doesn't throw us out on the front porch and say, never come back again. I'm, I'm really angry with you, you're never going to be my son until you clean it up. No. We understand it's, it's, it's the loving rebuke of a parent that says, come on, imitate me. Do you see me doing that? Then you shouldn't do it either. So it is also with God. We understand our relationship to God is rooted in grace. So when we see, see sin in our life, we are called to confess it and to repent of it, knowing, knowing our eternal life is secure in Christ. The whole world around us is living for themselves, by themselves. They're living to satisfy the desires of their heart. And even when they try for more, when they try for religion, when they try for spirituality, they are relying on themselves and what they can accomplish. And God calls us to live completely different than that. He calls us to live with a completely different orientation, turning to Him in faith, trusting Him to save us, trusting Him to grow us in godliness by the grace that He gives us. He calls us to die to selfishness and sin and to live each day for Him. And rather than expecting us to do this on our own, He says, I call you to live a holy life. Guess what? I will make it possible for you to do that. I will be the one to work in you, to give you a new heart, to grow godliness in you. All you must do is turn and continue to believe. Continue to believe. Continue to believe. Loved ones, let us, let us consider what it means to be God's people in an ungodly culture. Let us consider what it means to be called out to live differently from the world. Not to a, a sliding scale of morality, of not as bad as them, but to look to Christ and say, how do I measure up to Him? And when we feel conviction because the bar is set high and our lives are not matching up, it is not to run away and say, well, God must hate me. He's never going to love me. It's to say, no, I have trusted in Christ. Even now I trust in Christ. Therefore, I am right with him, not because of what I have done, but because of what Jesus has done for me. His righteousness is my righteousness. But God, I want to live up to what you have declared me to be because I want to love you more than I love sin. Loved ones, let's, let's do this together. Let's pursue godliness together. Let's renounce sin together, all the while encouraging one another to do it by grace by saying, look to Christ, look to Christ, look to Christ. God, is in the name of Christ that we come praying that you would, would take these truths and drive them into our hearts, God. Because, Father, we know that there is such a temptation. There is such a temptation to get caught up in lists and to pursue holiness by our own works. But God, help us not to do that. God, from moment to moment, day by day, help us to remember that we are living lives 
based on your grace alone. God, we are so thankful for that. Help us to exalt in it, to rejoice in it. God, may it have a profound effect on our lives. As we continue to consider the message of Titus this morning, we want to stand and sing, O great God of highest heaven. Stand and sing with us.